Our hymns and our creeds teach us a lot about who God is. There's another one um, that you all know a different tune to than I was raised with, and that's okay. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and it goes a little something like this. Oh, glory be Father and words on the screen, right? You got that? The song is fascinating. The first one, uh, praise God from whom all blessings throw our doxology, tells us a lot about God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Where does everything come from? It comes from God. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above you heavenly host. It tells us about a relationship to God where we are. And glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Ghost. God is three persons in one. These songs teach us a lot about God. This song, you might know it, written in 1680, Praise the Lord. It's hymn number 139 if you need to cheat. <laughs> Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy help and another one, but this song is so old that we actually don't have music for it. It's the first hymn, uh, probably, that the ancient uh, Christian community would sing that's outside of the scriptures. It's called Phos Hilaron, which is a transliteration of a Greek word. It means hail gladdening light. We don't know what it went like, but it was like hail gladdening light, sun of bright. Uh, the words translate like of, of holy God, immortal father. Uh, this is one of the oldest surviving hymns in the Christian community. It's still in use in the Vespers and some of the Mass, and uh, some of our uh, Catholic and Anglican brothers and sisters will sing this song occasionally. Uh, hymns, creeds, uh, these things shape and form who we are as a community. They become teaching vessels and tools as we encounter uh, learning more and more about God. So you would think writing a sermon about God would be easy. It was not. Uh, this was one of the hardest sermons for me to write because oftentimes we talk about what God is doing, the work of God in the community, the work of God in our lives, but we rarely take time to, to step back and talk about the doctrine of God and God's self. Um, it's difficult to wrap our minds around for reasons we're going to get into a little bit as we talk about what Methodists believe about God. Um, so, just curious, how many of you happened to grow up in a denomination that was not Methodist? Raise your hand. As I suspected, a lot of undercover Baptists and Catholics in here. Uh, you are in uh, a good um, company. And you might be asking, well, why in the world do we need to do this whole entire thing about Methodism and you? And that's why. Most of us grew up in a denomination other than Methodism, and that's okay. Uh, today's sermon, you might say, well, I already knew that. 
or that sounds like an orthodoxy view of God, and that's, <laughs> that's because it is. Uh, Methodists are staunchly rooted in Christianity and orthodoxy, and so a lot of things that we talk about today may not be a surprise to you, but could be a good reminder. It's helpful to revisit every now and then what we believe about God, who is God, and how God impacts our lives. And so uh, I, myself, was born and raised in a, in a Presbyterian house and church. Uh, I was part of the Frozen Chosen. It's very difficult for me to... See, 8.30 didn't get that. I'm so glad you all do. <laughs> it's so difficult for me to, like, clap my hands during worship and experience the Spirit in any meaningful way. Uh, it's very challenging. Um, I was born and raised for 18 years, and then I went off to a school called Indiana Wesleyan University. So you can imagine this poor little Calvinist boy going to an Arminian school and learning things about God who honors people's free will and autonomy. And I was like, I thought God was a grand chess master who really cared about exposition of the word. Uh, but it really confused me. Uh, from there, I went to work at a Methodist church in Cincinnati, became more and more familiar with John Wesley and the works of Methodism. And after that, I came to Houston and got involved in a vineyard church who I like to deem responsible charismatics. They're the folks who, um, they don't roll in the aisles, they don't handle snakes, uh, they speak in tongues, and sometimes it's very confusing, especially for a boy raised Presbyterian turned Methodist. I was like, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to stand over here. Uh, keep clear. Um, and it's very interesting. They'll raise their hands. They believe in something called the Holy Spirit. I think that's a person of the Trinity. Uh, it's been a while since I've dusted that one off. And so uh, that's, then from there, I went and found my calling and love in the Methodist church, a very big tent that believes uh, mightily in the power of the Spirit and has a strong doctrine of God. Uh, and so that's where I found myself. And so today, uh, I proudly present to you Methodism and you. Do you know those 1950s um, sort of educational videos, black and white, right? There's always some dusty old professor He gets the chalkboard out and he goes, well, Susie, I'm so glad you're here to talk about communism or whatever it could be, right? <laughs> Uh, I promise it won't be as dusty as that. But we may need a whiteboard to illustrate some things today as we present Methodism in you. I'll be your host, the Reverend Joshua Lemons, and it is so good to be with you all today. Um, our text is an interesting text. John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritans are few in number. Uh, as of the last census, there's only like 920 of them left globally. And they are situated sort of in the land in between in Cana. They're north of Jerusalem. They are south of Nazareth. That's sort of where they live and congregate for a particular reason, which we'll get to. A good Jew, and Jesus is a good Jew, believes in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. These are the law. These are things that also the Samaritans believe. But there are some distinct differences between the two. First, Samaritans are sort of like half-breeds. Yes, that's derogatory, and it should be, because that's how they would view them. And then uh, they also had a, a slight disagreement on where the holy place should be. The Samaritans thought it was Mount Gerizim, but the, the Jewish people believed it was in Jerusalem, and that's where Solomon's temple is. And so they didn't really play well together. And Jesus finds this woman at the well, and they get into a theological conversation. They begin talking about God. So a lot of God talk going on. And she's grilling this guy. She's like, teacher, uh, you say this. Your people say that. You believe this about God. 
You believe that God is in the temple. We think he's on this other mountain. Where, where is God? And Jesus answers theologically. He says, neither. <laughs> God is spirit. And we worship him in spirit and truth. It's amazing how this God talk all of a sudden gets very practical in people's lives. People wondering, where is this God? Does this God show up? What does this God do? How does this God interact with us? And Jesus says, God is spirit. God is everywhere, all around us. We just need to look. So they are engaging in God talk, which I find fascinating. Y'all, um, I have a, a Masters of Divinity. You can actually go do that. Uh, and I find it deeply ironic that you can get a master, you can master the divine. <laughs> and then they say, go be a pastor. <laughs> it's like, uh, is really, can you really, ma- I understand you can get a master's of chemistry or a master's of physics, but even then, some of you folks who have master's of chemistry or physics know the limitations of your knowledge. Imagine trying to master divinity. It's hilarious. A master divinity, just go. So this is God talk, right? Is talk about God. It's, it's conversation about something that we have access to, but we struggle with. The way that uh, some people will talk about this, at early service I had the choir and I was playing an evil game of Pictionary where you, all the congregation would win. It's all right, no one plays Pictionary? Okay, so I'm not a very good artist either, uh, but the way to think about it is that when we talk about God, it's like talking about a diamond. And when you, see it's a beautiful diamond, you get it. And so when you hold up a diamond and you look through one facet, you see the prism and the colors break out. You look through, you can see imperfections. And then you rotate the diamond and you see an entirely different perspective. And you show it to your friend and you say, what do you see? And they go, it looks like you have 10 eyes, right? And you, and you rotate the diamond again. And the diamond reveals more and more about itself as you turn it around with different perspectives. Our talk about God, when we seek to learn more about God, is a lot like looking through that diamond. Another way to think about it is, um, this is my wife, Jennifer. Uh, and just uh, many of you know Jennifer. Uh, just let's take a quick survey of the room. How many of you know Jennifer? Just raise your hand. All right, yeah, over half, easy. Uh, maybe 75, 80% of y'all know Jennifer. Great. Now, we have two kids uh, together and uh, one on the way. And so uh, you, would you say that my children know Jennifer as well? Yeah, all you nod your head, absolutely. Okay, now would you say that I know Jennifer? Yeah, of course. Uh, we, uh, a little bit about us. We've been, um, we dated since middle school. I have a picture of us when we first met. I'll show you one day. It's cute. And uh, we've been together for a long time. We've been married for almost 12 years. Uh, next year, uh, in May, whatever. So we've been together for a while. I know Jennifer. Would you say that Jennifer knows Jennifer? Okay, the answer is yes, right? Yeah, some of you are like, I have to think about that one. What do you mean by Jennifer? Okay, yeah, Jennifer knows Jennifer. Of course she does. Uh, now, who knows, uh, who's Gen- whose knowledge of Jennifer is uh, most true? Oh, there you go, right? It's going to begin to cook your bacon, I promise. Uh, it's like, well, you all know Jennifer, and your knowledge of Jennifer is not false. I know Jennifer, and my knowledge of Jennifer is not false. My kids know Jennifer, and their knowledge of Jennifer is not false. Jennifer knows herself, and her knowledge of herself is not false. How many of you have ever deceived yourself? How much of our knowledge is contingent on situation or ideas or concepts? Who knows Jennifer the most? You could say God. That God holds Jennifer in God's hands. That God's knowledge 
of Jennifer is complete and whole. So how can we talk about God if it's like looking through a diamond, if it's like knowledge that's sort of knowledge but difficult to grasp? Well, the way that we can talk about God is by asking how God has revealed God's self. You might recall a couple weeks ago, Pastor Peter talked about two forms of revelation, how God reveals God's self. The first is a general way, and the other is a specific way. So the first way that God reveals God's self, or a way that God reveals God's self, is through created order. You could say you look out and see the world the way things are. You look at photosynthesis. You look at gravity, and it's just right so we don't go jettisoning off the face of the earth. Uh, You look at the tilt of the earth's axis, and it's just perfect that we aren't in a continual polar ice age. And you say, man, there has to be something guiding all of these principles to work in harmony together. That is general revelation. The other way is through specific revelation. You could say through the person of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, through the scriptures. These also reveal things to us about God. And what do they reveal? A whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to focus on a couple today. Um, I think it will be helpful to sit with. The first is we realize that God is transcendent. So we realize that God is transcendent. And that means that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament and is the same God that we sang hymns to this morning. It's the same God that we pray to every day. That God transcends context, culture, time, place, locales. God is transcendent all through time. Nod your head, you're following along. Because it's going to get crazy, I promise. All right, God is transcendent. We are within orthodoxy, we're doing good. The other one that scriptures would tell us is that God is imminent. That means that God is here and now and pervading sort of us in our present time and place. God is near. God is not far off over there winding up a clock and letting it go. God is involved. God is next to us. God is with us. God's within us. God is moving here and now. Nod your head, you're following along. God is transcendent. God is imminent. And that's a paradox. It's hard to do both. God does it. God's also omni. And I shortened it because there's three omnis. God is omnipresent, omniscient, and he's omnipotent. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. God is all of those things. Jesus gets rid of those things. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, even to death, death on a cross. So Jesus is not the omnis, it's debated, but Jesus is not the omnis. <laughs> and then God is those things. Tracking so far? Okay, a few things that God is. God is absolute. He's infinite. He's righteous. He's just. He's loving and he's merciful. And the thing that I want to dive into, because I think it's very helpful, is when we talk about the infiniteness of God. And to do that, I want to borrow from math, which I know all of you are very excited about. 
I graduated high school with a 2.01, and I did not do very well in math. But I read some people who were very good in math, and when I read this, I was like, oh my goodness, that helps. And so to talk about math, I need to talk about video games. And so to do that, I'm going to talk about the quintessential video game of all time, the 2D scroller. A 2D scroller is like Super Mario Brothers. There is an X and a Y axis. And your little character, right, can run. I mean, you played Super Mario Brothers. Yep, came out in the 80s. And it can jump, bing, right? Hits a little box of coins. You've all seen this before. He, he can go up and down, side to side. Can Super Mario, can he go this way? No. And the answer is because that's a Z-axis, and that's the third dimension. So Mario cannot access the third dimension because he's stuck in 2D world. So when Mario sees you out of his only one eye, what do you, lo what do you, <laughs> what do you look like? You look like a sheet of paper. But are you? No. How does Mario explain the third dimension? I don't know. <laughs> he would say, you're like people, but you're not moving the way that I move. You're not jumping up and down getting coins. You just exist. You're there. I see you, but I don't know what you're doing. Because he doesn't have access to that. So we are existing, it's debated, in probably the fourth dimension. Because the fourth dimension, we don't know what it is. It's debated. But it's probably time. That's what Carl Sagan would say and Neil deGrasse Tyson, some other uh, astrophysicists. And time is a, a great um, dimension, right? You can go up and down, you can go side to side, and then you can do stuff. So can you untie a three-dimensional knot if you only have three dimensions? No. Why? Because you don't have access to time. It's crazy to think about. So the only way that you can untie your shoes is because you exist in a dimension past the knot. Which raises a question for me, which dimension is God in? Uh, it, more? Infinite? If God exists in the infinite dimension, how in the world are we supposed to talk about that being? Furthermore, what's possible for that being? We pray something like, God, take away my cancer, and you go, that's impossible, and God who exists in the infinite dimension says, if only you knew. We say, God, why are you not here? And God goes, I am everywhere. You have little faith. When we understand that God exists in the infinite dimension, all of a sudden this God is massive. This God is powerful, and this God can do anything. And so when we're praying and God seems distant, no. God's right there. We just can't see him. When we're reading our Bible and we don't understand the words and we pray for God to help us out and we still don't get it, God's right there beside us. This God that is in the infinite dimension, this God creates and sustains. He, he, this God loves. This God suffers alongside us. This God judges, redeems, and reigns. This God is all-powerful. And so how does this help us, ultimately? I think that's how... When we remember who God is, we live our lives differently. We are reminded of the reality of the universe, of a God who suffers with us, loves us, and redeems us all the same. And so praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.